Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. friends and neighbors, you're listening to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael. I'm Cameron. Cameron? Uh-huh. You're just gonna talk to me? Yeah. Oh, wait, hold on. Huh? Hold on. What is this in my pocket? Huh. What, what is that in your pocket? Mm. Mm. Ha! Take that! I'm throwing watermelon at you! Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Take that, the troops. <laughs> um, okay. Mm-hmm. You yeah. like that? I, I'm trying to, I'm getting more and more of a deep dive every time we do one of these. Yeah. I'm, I'm really going for the, the uh, you know, the one paragraph of content. It's deep in the yeah. book. It's really rewarding the people who are paying attention. <laughs> because they will know well i what i love about it is that it lets you know right up front that the book we are talking about uh the long walk our second bachman book uh published in 1979 under stephen king's pseudonym richard bachman contains a scene in which watermelon gets thrown Mm -hmm. in which a kindly italian man it's very important that you know his his ethnicity yeah uh, yeah. A kindly Italian man uh, throws watermelon at the troops. And then also at the walkers, but mostly at the troops, it seems. <laughs> so if you've never heard of The Long Walk or, or, or anything like it, just imagine if there was like a, a character in, say, like The Hunger Games or something who was famous for throwing watermelon at, at, at people. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, I, can I tell you this? When that scene happened in the book... This is not on purpose, but in my mind, it was Mario, <laughs> another famous Italian, throwing that watermelon. He had a red hat on and and overalls, and he was a ta- he had taken a day off of plumbing to huck watermelon at people. Oh, I am so glad you've given us a face cast at the beginning because I've got some really good face casts for some characters later on in this book. Well, you uh, and also I really love Mario for that. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah, well, Luigi's got to drive the truck. <laughs> it's Mario supports the long walkers. <laughs> oh, um, God, what a weird book. A very strange book. Uh, you've read this before. Right? I have read this before. Yeah. 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 Uh, so have I. I read it in high school. And how I remember it uh, was much more positive than how I feel about it now. But I still think kind of like, I still think the engine of the book is there. I'm just less impressed with it as I was in high school um, for reasons we will assuredly get into. Do you think that most Stephen King books are impressive when you're in middle and high school because he wrote a lot of these when he was in high school and college? (laughs) 
Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, maybe uh, this book was in fact written when King was an undergraduate at uh, University of Maine um, and he tried to get it published. Uh, it did not uh, work out that way and so it eventually got trunked, although he was continuing to try to sell it right up until the time he was at, uh, eventually until the point where he was um, pitching to Doubleday and he got Carrie published. This was a book mm. that I believe he tried to put through editorial there and it uh, got rejected. So then uh, later on, we've already covered this in the previous episode on the uh, Bachman book Rage, when he gets his desire to have his weird pseudonym and he goes into his trunk to publish more novels, he pulls out the one he wrote in high school and then the one he wrote in college. Well, this is substantially better than the one he wrote in high school. Like, it by is a country incredibly mile. better. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I really want to get into. I mean, do you want to give us the uh, the summary because I want to start talking about why it's better. Yeah, yeah, I bet I can. I can do that. So this time, I'm doing the five sentence summary. Uh, Going off of Cameron's lead, I did not pre-write this, so we're going to see how I can do this uh, off the top of my head. In what is potentially a near-future totalitarian United States, the country is held in thrall to a yearly event called the Long Walk, wherein a group of young high school-aged boys embark upon what is ostensibly a walk, I think what is supposed to be a walk, a walk along the eastern seaboard of uh, the United States. It rarely gets out of Maine. Our protagonist, Ray Garrity, is a young boy who joins the Long Walk and meets many various other kinds of young men who are also on the long walk, and they share stories about their lives as they are walking. They are shot when they do not walk at a certain pace or if they go off the track. Many of them die just as a natural course of things. At the end, Garrity may or may not be the winner. That That is accurate. Is it a game, Michael? Is the long walk a game? Hmm. I mean, for a certain definition of game. Hmm. Tune in to Game Studies Study by this or other mm-hmm. podcast where we only talk about the long walk. <laughs> and if it's a game. Uh, but yeah, but this is a in a long, well, maybe, I don't know about a long uh, genre, in a well-worn at this point genre, right? I think a mm-hmm. lot of, uh, I don't know, thinking about this kind of stuff, right, get, get, goes to uh, Battle Royale. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, it's from, is it from 99? It's from the 90s, right? Battle Royale? Uh, yeah, I believe the 90s. Um, uh do you want to check you want- at most like late 80s because i know uh, uh a certain bruce springsteen record is a plot point in that oh i thought you were about to say a certain bruce springsteen record is uh based on battle royale <laughs> <laughs> Which be, uh, so much better yeah it's uh the 19 the book was 1999 so yeah battle royale uh you know it's often talked about as kind of the precursor of something like the hunger games but all of the pieces of the Hunger Games, for the most part, are here in the Long Walk as well. 
Um, so it's really interesting to see th this kind of like jumping lineage of, I don't know, like pseudo game nationalist narratives, you know, uh, where children get murdered over and over again. Um, yeah. You know, as as part of a long trajectory. And I'm sure that there's like science fiction stuff from before this that, that is also in that genre. But I'm, I can't I have a hard time thinking of what that might be. Yeah, no, it certainly it feels um, well, I mean, just to you know, state the obvious, like this is the the science fictioniest of the novels we've read so far. Uh so it has kind of that lineage to it. And uh, you know, I think here King is also pulling on to some extent kind of like Lord of the Flies, which is mm -hmm. a big touchstone for him. It's going to come up a lot in his later books when he gets more wistful about his adolescence. Um, but I think even here you can see uh, a similar kind of uh, way of thinking about how you tell a story uh, about multiple characters, uh, which he pulls off much better than he ends up doing in, in Rage, which felt mm -hmm. like it didn't have as much in the way of a, a model that it learned from. Yeah, all of these, the or I guess not all of these, but these, these Bachman books in particular are really books about people talking to each other mm -hmm. in, in in really delimited spaces, right? I mean, this obviously has much more room than Rage does because it they are walking constantly. So they're going from, you know, town and they go into these cities and then they have these moments that are almost like locked rooms because they're in these places between towns when, where there's no one. But really what drives the plot here uh, in this book, and same as with Rage, is that these people are stuck with one another and so they have to talk to each other. Um, they they, mm -hmm. they work a lot like melodramas in that way where it's, it's just, you know, character types. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, Steve's <laughs> beloved character typologies <laughs> and uh, not that many show up here, kind of weirdly enough, but all of these people are very two dimensional. You know, I wouldn't say there are very mm -hmm. many 3D characters here. And it's because he's got so many that he's like kicking around and, and pinging into each other in this group of men mm -hmm. who are all walking to their death. Yep. It, what I guess what's kind of weird about this too is it's hard to talk about plot because it really is just people. I mean, I just told you the yeah, plot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, there's not really that much more to it. It's not as if there's like real development that happens. You know, they they start at the beginning and we get this kind of cast of characters, none of whom I can keep straight, uh, you know, as mm -hmm. far as like uh, who they are. Um, and they all show up at like the point and we get a little bit of this dystopian narrative, right? The idea that um, we're in this pseudo far future or not far future, near future, I guess, dystopia of the United States. There's been some sort of nuclear war in Russia or not in Russia, but in Europe, um, mm -hmm. because we learn that one character has lost a leg, not not one of the walkers, but an additional character outside the the thing, a mayor later on lost a leg in Germany due to radiation poisoning. Mm -hmm. That's like a big question mark kind of thing. And then we get all this kind of like, you know, there's uh, like secret police running around and all that kind of stuff in the United States, but they all show up and they get ready to walk and they meet this character named the major. And then they just start walking. And the whole book is just all these scenes of either people sharing information with one another or watching one of the people die because they're not walking at a steady four miles per hour. 
It's really weird. It's all kind of just reflection and like the the meat of what you're going to end up reading is just the characters, as you said, talking to one another, exchanging information. And it's just like stories about where they're from or things that they have heard or uh, it, and in that way, it does come out like Rage as being kind of a, an interconnected series of short stories uh, that just all happen to end with these characters being here at the long walk and it's not even direct sometimes it may feel a little more than that like it's it's sort of characters uh divulging kind of what their motivations are um but really it's just these guys shooting the shit yeah and slowly coming to terms that with the idea that they have begun they started with this thing it's you know a game sort of you know kind of Mm -hmm. unclear right but it's a national project right the long walk is a thing that happens every year and that there's a huge amount of national pride in so you know it seems like most states even though this is not the way it works out it's kind of a lottery system but it seems like there's a lot of representation from around the united states in the long walk and the reason that people want to do it is both kind of pride you know in the sense Mm -hmm. that you get to represent your community garrity who is from maine everyone is being like yay garrity we're all behind you um, and then also there's a thing, I think it's called the prize, right? Yes. Um, it, which is you just get whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Like the government gives you whatever your heart's desire is. Uh, if you mm-hmm. win, if you are the last person standing. Yeah, it's a really, again, uh, the, the way I would kind of describe how this book feels is that it is almost like an evil Spielberg movie. Yeah. Right. From about this same time, like that's kind of uh, the feeling that it has of uh, that sort of 70s Spielbergian big concept, uh, uh, but very sort of like recognizable characters, Um, even though you just said you can't tell them apart. What I mean when I say they're recognizable is that like each character has their note. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Like they have their thing that sort of defines them or, or whatever, like. You said that they're not many stock characters, and that is true, although we do have a character who is kind of an evil greaser in that <laughs> he's the shithead that no one likes. Is that Barkovich? Yeah. yeah, that's his name is Barkovich. Uh, and he talks like his dialogue is written as if he were like a tough guy from the Bronx or something. Yeah, Barkovich is the main character from Rage transported into <laughs> this novel. <laughs> Well, uh, I the, the thing that just struck me is that it is impossible for me to not read his dialogue as being in, like, a really broad New York City, like, tough guy accent. But he is from Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> a real Beltway insider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway. Yeah, that's really, like, that's what this book is about. And it's... if. It sounded like Cameron was being very speculative with how he was describing sort of what the world looks like, because we know that, for instance, there are secret police because uh, the uh, Garrity, the the main character, he he had his father was what they call squatted. Right. Um, He was taken away by by the secret police because he was making his political opinions known in some vague way. but the other thing that's really weird about this novel, which I think, you know, is positioned as science fiction, is that the future is remarkably, even after a nuclear war in Russia, like, there's nothing terribly different about standards of living or sort of, like, social practices exactly. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like 
you know, the early to late 60s when it was written, right? It feels kind of like just of a piece with the time. And we even find out that, like, the United States has expanded because now there are 51 states. Mm -hmm. uh, And there's no talk of, like, sort of resources being rewritten. All the stuff that you would associate today with a book with this premise, right? Something like The Hunger Games, which has... Like every district uh, contributes something to the overall economy of the of the fascist government. None of that is here. It does not feel like the future at all. It feels like the time when Stephen King was writing, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, what do you think of that? Cameron? Yeah, I think it's one of the strengths of the book, and I think that it's actually it points to something that Stephen King is very good at, which is, uh, it, and I think this is how his horror works. When when I mean, I still don't think we've read a. Stephen King horror novel yet, weirdly enough, right? That really kind of leans on the things that we associate, uh, you know, the the kind of body horror and things like that that show up in the mid 1980s and Stephen King in particular. Uh, so when we get to it, for example, right? You know, that that mm-hmm. opening segment of it. You know, if you haven't read it, I'm not going to spoil anything for it until we get to that episode. But if you have, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, you know, kind of dismemberment and things like that. We haven't really seen very much of that here, and and the the reason I think. To, to go back to what I'm actually talking about, I think the way that the dystopia works here is really similar to how his fantasy and how his horror works, which is that Stephen King is very good at giving you the world that we live in plus or minus 5%. Mm-hmm. And that plus and minus 5% is, a, a, a you know, there's, uh, oh yeah, it's the exact world that we live in, but there's, uh, you know, an evil creature that lives in the sewer. And that's mm-hmm. going to change your, you know, for most people, it's not going to change the world all that much for you. But for some people, it's going to change the world for you a whole lot. And I think that mm-hmm. that's the way dystopia works here, um, is that this is just the world as it exists in the, you know, 1970s, um, you know, the mid 70s, maybe. But it's just plus, you know, 5% in the sense of there's a totalitarian government. Um, And I I, I think back to, I believe it was during the Stand commentary that I listened to from the Stand miniseries from the bonus episode from last time. If you don't listen to our bonus episodes, you should give it a shot. uh, $5 on Patreon. The link is in the description below. But, you know, when, when Stephen King is talking about how he came into political awakening in 1968, and I, I think that the reason that this dystopia is shaped the way that it is and the, the reason that it feels so, you know, quote unquote normal, it's not spectacular and it's not really that speculative in the sense of, you know, there isn't a reconfiguration of the United States and there's not a new world order that is establishing itself. Right. It's basically just the way things were. But there is a military presence everywhere and there's squads who, you know, if you yell too much on the telephone about disagreeing with the government, you just disappear. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that's Stephen King looking at 1968 and looking what, at what's happening around the United States and then looking particularly at what the, uh, the right wing is saying, right? And, and they're kind of responses or desires, you know, after, say, the... Uh, Democratic National Convention, right, in the way that that gets demonized mm-hmm. and talked about, in the way that the center and the right talk about that. And I think that Stephen King sees that and he thinks, you know, that's what the man would do. Um, yeah. I think the other part of this, too, I'm curious about what you think, um, uh, is that I think this is about Vietnam. I mean, I think this is a novel that is a Vietnam novel. 
Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the reason that I think that, I mean, we can kind of get into, I don't know if Stephen King has, I, I'm on first, uh, first name basis with him now, Stephen. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, I don't know if Stephen King has talked about this somewhere. Maybe I just have that in my head, you know, so maybe he talks about it in on writing or in Dance Macabre or something. Uh, you would know better than I would, Michael. But um, I have always read this. Even the first time I read this, uh, you know, in the Bachman Books collection, probably in, in you know, in the eighth grade or something like that, seventh, eighth grade, I've always understood this to be a novel about Vietnam. And I don't know why I think that. I don't know if I've read that somewhere or I don't know if someone told me that or whatever. But, you know, especially reading through it now, because I haven't, I don't think at least, I don't think I've reread this book since then. It really feels that way to me, right? And especially all these kind of characters talking about um, the world that they live in and what the long walk is meant to do for them, the different ways that people run into this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's war. It's a war novel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I had not thought of that and I haven't heard anything like that. It's If it comes up in On Writing or Dan's Macabre, it's not something that's stuck with me and it didn't come up in anything that I was looking at prior to recording. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that you say it, I absolutely see it. Uh, and that just speaks to what we've talked about before, right? The the Stephen Kinginess of uh, the kind of little genre twist that he'll do, uh, where this is, you know, this is exactly kind of like a, um, a, a certain genre of Vietnam War novel of a bunch of guys uh, in a really awful situation, slowly getting to know each other, even as they are all one by one getting injured and dying. Yeah, I mean, it's the things they carried. Like it, it has yeah. a very similar structure to the things they carried. Um, and, and especially because it's this kind of unrelated vignette, right? So it's, you know, things that are happening in the moment and then very easily people kind of, or, or you know, the novelistic voice, the narrator of the novel delving back in time into other people's stories that they wouldn't even have access to. And yet still being able to do that. We get a little bit of that, you know, with McFreeze, um, you know, mm -hmm. narrating, about his life and and uh working in the laundry factory and all that stuff yeah that's i mean to to summarize any more of the novel uh we would just have to summarize kind of the the general arcs of the characters so garrity is the main character uh the guy we see everyone's everyone else through even though the narrator is third person uh we're kind of G garrity is the person we return to the most um you mentioned mcvreeze who's kind of his buddy mcvreeze has a scar on his face yeah so and this is this is the type of story this is right Garrity shows up at the beginning uh, at the parking lot in like the National Park or whatever where the long walk starts uh, and all the guys are lining up and he sees McVries, uh the guy with the scar and if this were a movie again think you know evil Spielberg movie you know you see this guy with the scar by the end of this movie we're going to find out how that guy got that scar mm -hmm. um, and we do here uh, and it's really messed up uh and so we find out that a lot of these guys who are on the long walk are kind of i guess fleeing things mm -hmm. uh you know uh uh sort of circumstances or forces with which they couldn't deal um who who jumped out to you cameron uh well uh there's stebbins uh-huh uh who who i uh who i like quite a lot so one thing i want to say here i guess before we talk more about the characters just really briefly is that the physics of this novel don't make any sense okay yes continue. so so the system under which this entire novel operates is that these people have to walk constantly right uh-huh and so they begin and they have to walk at four miles per hour constantly 
if you stop walking at four miles per hour, you get a warning. You get three warnings, and then 30 seconds after your third warning, you are shot dead. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's all correct? I believe so, okay. yes. There's so much talk in this novel about um, catching up to people or slowing back to people. Uh-huh. But you can't, no one could ever go backward. Because even the last person in line would have to be walking four miles per hour. And you would also have to be walking four miles per hour. Mm-hmm. So you could never go backward. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't understand, right? Steve's killing me here. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, it makes sense when you realize, I didn't mention this, but like, this was inspired by uh, a sort of contest that radio stations would do at this time, and Stephen King participated in one of them. He did not finish, but it was a sort of like radio station promotion, um, like, you know, come out to wherever and do a like 10 mile walk. Mm. And if you can do the whole walk, then you get a new car or something. Like a hand on the car challenge. Yes, exactly. It's like that, except uh, they had them do uh, a walk. Um, I don't know how long or whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so Stephen King is doing this when he's in college because he doesn't have a car. Um, He does not win, but it plants the seed for this idea of doing the whole walk, like the dystopian walk along the coast. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're getting at, right, is that when he sits down to actually write this, he's not remembering the time he was literally in a death march. Uh, but just sort of the time he was hanging out with a bunch of other guys his age who wanted a car, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, it's a we- <laughs> it is really weird. It's the ultimate Stephen King move, I guess, to be like, yeah. what about this thing that I did to try to win a car? And what if I wrote it like a Vietnam War novel about the near future totalitarian United States? Under which, this is what I'll mention, did you catch this? There are no more millionaires? Yes, I did. That was the one uh, sort of suggestion of some sort of like decreased standard of living in the entire book, but it is only to suggest that maybe the the government is somehow nominally communist or something. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, the United States has moved... um, I, I think it's like a, a Maoist, you know, like censorious left government. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. This is not a, uh, you know, what the dangers of the right wing kind of novel. It's like, what if um, the, what if the communists won? Because we all know, I mean, you know, Steve is part of the radical center. We all know if you go too far in one direction, you end up, you know, horseshoed back. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you're always going to end up there anyway. Uh, the reason I'm bringing that up around Stebbins is Stebbins is, uh, you know, sticks out to me in a big way because he's like hyper prepped for the thing. He's got two pairs of shoes with him. You know, that's uh-huh. smart to do. He brings some sandwiches with him. Um, he, he's like sitting in a tree when the when the mm-hmm. thing starts. When the He's like yeah, he's like the small, mysterious guy. Exactly. But he's in the back the whole time. He's literally the very last person. So the whole novel is spent like quote-unquote dropping back to talk to Stebbins about stuff and that it doesn't make any sense I guess that I guess if Stebbins was moving at like 4.2 miles per hour and you went down to the (laughs) bare minimum four miles per hour then theoretically he could catch up to you but that doesn't seem to be how this works anyway it it's really not the kind of thing to get locked in. And yet I read this novel and the whole time I was like, how does this work? How do these physics work? <laughs> um, but oh well. Uh, but so Stebbins sticks out to me because he is this kind of like marker villain, right? The whole time 
uh, there are characters like Barkovich you were talking about who are Barkovich's whole thing is yelling like, I'll dance on your grave. Um, mm -hmm. he, and he baits a guy pretty early into fighting with him and then getting killed. Yeah. And, and so everyone calls him murderer. Exactly. And so he's like this villain character, but uh, Stephen King uses Stebbins as like Barkovich might talk a lot, but he's not going to last. Right. Even though he's like fueled entirely by hate and, and being a jackass, he won't win. Stebbins is so much more evil because he's going to walk you into the dirt. Like he, he is going, yeah. he has planned his life around this. And he, Stebbins also, we learn uh, in one of those kind of flashback moments, Stebbins has seen the finale of a long walk before. He's seen the, the last moments of these people who've been walking for days, you know, nonstop. You, you watch them collapse and, and, you know, kind of, you know, lose their minds basically just die. Mm -hmm. And then he decided, I got to go do that, you know. So he knows. he's the, He has the full well, reality in front of him. Well, he did it. Do you remember why he did it? Uh, not why he did it. Well, I, uh, programmatically, I know why he did it, but not like the motivation, yeah. I guess. Because this is this becomes sort of a plot point is figuring out sort of like who who has motivation and who doesn't. Yeah. And Stebbins, uh, this whole thing for him, it turns out, is like a sort of twisted uh personal statement because he is the major's son yeah so i mean the major is such an interesting character too because he's kind of uh it's like i don't know like what if alex trebek and the napalm in the morning guy from apocalypse now yeah what if they were one guy yeah um, and this is made funnier by, uh, I promised at the beginning, there were some very good face casts uh, for this book for me. Do you want to know who I picture as Stebbins? Uh, sure. Scooter from the Muppets. Oh, you could, oh my God, there'd be, you could do such a good Muppets with this. I know. The Muppets <laughs> long walk would be so yes. good. Like... It occurred to me as I was reading it, like, and here's the other weird thing is I remember reading this in high school and having the same weird, like, instinctive thing where I face cast Stebbins as Scooter from the Muppets. So this is stuck with me, right? This, like, just unshakable impression and <laughs> just Garrity as Kermit and so on. Oh, my God. It would be so. I, I, I guess there's another thing to say, too. I am astounded. I'm really am shocked. It must be the 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 child thing because the age group, they can be between 14 and 18 or something or mm -hmm. 16 and 18 or no. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they're, they're late teenagers who uh, who can do this. That's got to be the only reason why this hasn't been adapted into a film, right? I mean, I don't know. It must be because otherwise this would be like to the book. This would be an incredibly easy thing to film, actually, I think. Yeah, and it would, it's engaging like it. It, it yeah. works, I, you know, a tight 90 minutes of the thing. I say this every episode, but uh, producers call me, uh -huh. you know, I'll, I'll uh, write the long walk. Uh, I'll do that. I'll stretch this bad boy out into 24 episodes. Uh -huh. I don't care. I got no shame <laughs> uh, when it comes to adapting the long walk. I would love to do it. Our Disney Plus original with the Muppets. Absolutely. I will do it any day. I promise. And the Muppets have gone weird places. There was that whole thing about uh, Fozzie having sexual intercourse with a human woman on that NBC show. Um, so mm -hmm. we can do anything now with the Muppets. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, so uh, who have we talked about so far? We've talked about Garrity as a, as a main character. We talked about McVries, 
we, who we can talk about his backstory, I guess. But but then we talked about Stebbins. Let's talk about McBreeze's backstory because uh, his whole deal, right, is that he and Garrity kind of meet each other at the beginning and they kind of hit it off and they end up saving each other several times. Uh, the comparison that I think is uh, helpful here, uh, McVries is Dustin Hoffman's character in Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> You're talking about Ratso Rizzo? Yeah. <laughs> he's walking here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's the same sort of yeah. thing. It's like he's sort of like the more, like Garrity's kind of naive, mm-hmm. kind of like kind-hearted, but Vries is more jaded. He's like a wise talker. He He's more street smart. He comes from a rougher context. Mm-hmm. Um. And but they end up sort of like locked together in this weird codependency. Yeah, he has raw hamburger in his backpack. Uh huh. Did you catch that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's weird. I not only caught it, but I thought about it several pages later when the characters remember it. <laughs> they do talk about it several times. It's a it's a thing where he was like, I put that in there. I got to talk about it again. Uh, but yeah. not enough where it comes up like, you know, as an important plot point. But uh, but yeah, so so that that really is our kind of dyad. The, the writing between Gary Dean and McVries, because for the most part, everyone else, you know, I would say that characters who show up very regularly are Garrity, McVries, Barkovich, Stebbins, who we've all talked about in different ways. And then is it is it Olsen who's the one who's uh, with them at the very beginning? I think so. These are the guys that I can't uh, quite keep apart. They're the ones who are much vaguer. Um, but Olsen might have been one of those because I think Olsen is... Maybe Olsen is like cocky or overconfident. Yes. Uh, so he's the one who the major, he, he tells the major when they're uh, getting ready to go, he's like, I'm going to give him hell. I'm going to win. And the major claps him on the back or whatever. Oh, uh, yes, yes. And then yes, he immediately right. starts to cramp up. <laughs> you know, he's yes. like one of the first ones to go to go down. So the, or not, he actually lasts a long time. But as far as like, uh, you know, from his peak to his his trough is a pretty uh, precipitous drop. Um, yeah. but, uh, but those are kind of like the core characters who keep talking to each other over and over again. And there's a couple more, but, but those are the ones who, you know, I would say are, are the core group, but McVries and Garrity make up a really interesting, you know, pairing because, uh, King, I don't know. This is, um, I think some of the most talented character writing that we've seen so far in the novels that we've read of Stephen King so far, because he goes, Mm -hmm. he very quickly dives into, I mean, it's not a queer subtext at all. (laughs) It is a queer text. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He is not able to really do subtext (laughs) in the way that Uh other writers do. Um, But, but he makes it pretty clear that, that there is not just, that friendship is not just friendship in this scenario. Yeah. That there's attraction uh, or something going on. I, I I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Well, um, I think it is it's interesting that you bring this up, uh, because yeah, I totally agree. But here is what is interesting. Um so uh Stephen King writes uh, you know, much recently, right, in the past couple of years, he he writes uh something for like his alumni magazine, right? And he talks about the long walk. Um and sort of his experience writing it when he was an un- an undergrad. Uh and I'm pulling this sort of second hand from an essay on the website Stephen King Revisited that's run by uh Richard Chismar and a couple of people. So this is written by uh this is an essay written on the long walk by Bev Vincent. Mm. Um, and he uh, is quoting this interview uh, where King, very famously, we've mentioned this a couple times, uh, 
does not outline his plots. Mm -hmm. Does not know sort of like where they're going or necessarily why they're going. And uh, in the last episode, when talking about The Stand, uh, we discussed some of the consequences of this type of writing. So one of the consequences of this in writing The Long Walk is that when he started writing, he claims he did not really know why they were in the walk to begin with. He says, what I cared about, um, he didn't care much about the vague totalitarian dystopia, he says, which sort of checks out, right? He's not doing a lot of world building Mm -hmm. here. What I cared about was the life and death nature of the contest. What I cared about were the characters, especially the conundrum of my protagonist, Ray Garrity. I kept writing in order to find out why he was doing something that meant almost certain death. Finally, I did. Uh, and, I mean, to my reading, right, it turns out, like, the end of the, the novel suggests to me that uh, Ray Garrity is, like, putting himself to death because he is terrified that he might be gay. Yeah, 100%. Right. Like and that's just like straight up what this book is about. Yeah. You know, and this is maybe why um, I align it so much with like a Vietnam War story. Right. Because I think that 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 question that King, I guess, is asking himself. So it it really is weird that Stephen King is just like, I don't know, the numinous flows through me and I just write things down. I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know why things happen. Uh, It's really just the subconscious, like making things happen for him. Um, but, 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 you know, it feels like, uh, you know, when these characters are talking about the kind of trajectory that got them there, it's always, um, the world exists in, in X shape and I exist in Y shape and I just can't make that happen. Right. So there are the, Mm -hmm. the two brothers, um, you know, so one, they knew for a fact, one of them wasn't going to get out, um, who are Hopi from New Mexico. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and right, like it very explicitly, there, there's a couple conversations that happen about that's the reason that they're there is that, you know, that that the the world is not shaped in such a way to, to make their life livable in that way. And so they're going for the long walk to try to figure out some way out of it. Um, and yeah. McVries is the exact same way. Right. Um, he uh, I, I mean, he basically is pseudo heartbroken. We'll talk about his backstory in a minute, but at least from his perspective, right? He is heartbroken and can't figure out how the world works. And so he just kind of goes into it. And there's a couple other people who feel a strong obligation. There's a guy, is it maybe Scram? I'm looking at the list of people you have who has a new mm-hmm. kid on the way and he yeah. wants to be able to send that kid to college. And so he's just doing it. And, you know, so all this to me feels like, you know, these are reasons why, particularly, uh, you know, poverty, these are reasons why people join the military. And these are reasons why people put their life on the line for, um, you know, to, to get this ambiguous benefit that, that comes with it that, uh, you know, at least hopefully is, is material in some way. Um, but then Stephen King provides this other kind of narrative for Garrity, which is that, the, there seems to be both in the this uh, pseudo 1970s world, but also in this dystopia, there would be no way for him to be an out gay man. Mm-hmm. And so he chooses, you know, annihilation in front of that. And, and on one hand, I think that it, or not on one hand, I guess that is incredibly tragic. And it is also mm-hmm. incredibly, uh, I think, plot plot point stereotypical in some ways. Uh-huh. Um, and also, I think it's Stephen King trying to stretch a little bit. Um, because this is not something he's tackled so far 
in in a written mm-hmm. work, right? So you know, I I don't say any of that to excuse it. I think that I think that especially from the perspective of 2020, that's like boring and offensive <laughs> both. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that it's Stephen King, as you just said, trying to solve a problem, and he's doing it in a way that at least for Stephen King in 1979 is fairly novel. Um, I don't know if it's entirely successful, but I do think that it makes for some really interesting scene writing that Stephen King up to this point has not attempted in any kind of way, which is Garrity and McVries trying to navigate that together. Right. Which is, again, uh, that sort of in light of everything we just said to point back to my Midnight Cowboy mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, comparison. Right. I get a real sense that there is that Stephen King is consciously modeling this type of uh ambiguous uh homosocial relationship that garrity and mcvries develop uh on on that yeah. uh actually can't can i even say that did that movie come out by this yeah, point yeah 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 it did okay mm-hmm. i don't know um, that's that's the kind of thing right is that you know yeah it's 69 nice <laughs> but uh but yeah no it does have that kind of of feeling to it and the ending of course you know of of midnight cowboy is very similar to the ending. I mean, not literally, but but uh, <laughs> uh, schematically, right? Structurally, of mm-hmm. of um, McVries abandoning him, basically, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in in the similar way to uh, Midnight Cowboy, uh, Rizzo dying. Um, let's talk about McVries. I think we I, I I think we can't avoid it. Yeah, I was gonna say we kind of talked about everything, but McVries's uh, frankly incredibly shitty backstory. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. This is the, uh, it's very similar to what we talked about in Rage, where um, Stephen King is writing this in such a way that it appears that structurally we are supposed to be like, dang, I feel bad for this dude. But if you step Mm -hmm. out of the way it's being written, he's like a fucked up guy. (laughs) Yeah, He's not good. Uh, yeah, so he got that scar um, because his ex-girlfriend gave it to him because he tried to rape her, is the short of it. Well, and he tried to do that because she was making more money than he was. Yeah. Like, it, it, we, you know, it just keeps going deeper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was going to say, we, were, we could build out from that. I was just sort of like putting like the key thing first, yeah. which is that this this novel is like, man, isn't it tough for this guy? Yes, exactly. Um, and his story, I mean, obviously beyond that, which is, um, you know, I don't know, exploitative in every possible way, I guess is, is maybe the best way to put it. But his story in a general sense, um, is, is a pretty good Stephen King story in that it feels very real, not the part that you just said, Mm -hmm. but like the backstory to it, which is that he and his girlfriend over the summer wanted to get jobs to get out of their town. And so they go get jobs in like a fabric factory. I said laundry factory earlier, but it's like, um, I don't know. They make fabric of some sort. And Mm -hmm. she works on the showroom floor and he works in like the, the shittier part. And he is just bad at his job. He's not good enough. And so all of these adult men who he works with hate him because they don't they aren't able to make as much product and so they don't get uh, the bonus that they're used to when he's working because mm-hmm. he's the person who's feeding them this this uh, uh, fabric basically and so then they just beat the shit out of him one day after work and tell him never don't come back again and so then he tries to make her quit and then assaults her 
And then she mm-hmm. grabs a, like a switchblade or something and cuts him in the face. Yeah. Um, but the first part, the part about the dude getting beat up for being shitty at his job, I thought that was really great. Yeah, no, it has this very, uh, there is a, there is a type of story that Stephen King is interested in, which is this very hard scrabble working class melodrama, Mm -hmm. uh, that is straight up just all of, all of the McGree's stuff. Um, I mean, to some extent, right, I'm thinking maybe some of the most excessive melodrama, um, all the way through this story, uh, but there is, like, it, it shows up again, uh, these like tortured sexual uh stories mm-hmm. uh show up again and again uh like sexual melodrama i guess you might call them something like something like the room in its way although stephen king manages to pull it off much better uh especially here uh i think oh the, that is such a good i've never thought of that comparison before but that is such a good comparison for so much of this of this book in particular yeah. I mean, a lot of this is written like uh, it is written as if Stephen King has read a lot of books that have sex in them. Uh-huh. But he but he's never understood how it worked <laughs> or how like people have relationships with sex. And so mm-hmm. he's just kind of playing it by ear. Yes. It's like if I were writing a book about what it meant to live in France. <laughs> and I'd be like, well, I don't know. I'd like know a little bit about it. But it's like I looked out my window at the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I went down to the cafe uh, and I uh-huh. had a cappuccino, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess. Uh, but but yeah, and I, I, and I think that's where like the melodrama comes from is it's like it's full of stock characters having very 1960s, 1970s, you know, capital L literature thoughts. And then he's got to push it. Right. So that's where we get, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, what happens? Uh, he there's an attempted rape and then, uh, you know, she cuts him in the face. Right. Uh, it's very yeah. it turns into like a soap opera almost mm-hmm. um, because I, he doesn't have anywhere to go. He can't keep it at one level. Right. He's got to keep making it, um, uh, I don't know, heightened or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, McVree sucks uh, as a uh, as a dude, but as a as a character, fairly fairly compelling because of I think this kind of queer relationship with Garrity, and Garrity himself has has a girlfriend mm-hmm. whom he thinks about one might say compulsively, obsessively, constantly. Yeah, and it's it is as you say, like it's it's a very interesting thing because uh, what you say it is not even subtext right that it is text and that is true but uh, the the name we are giving it is not the name that the novel gives it mm-hmm. right it's kind of like that classic sort of like uh problem of queerness where like the category can be apprehended uh even without being named 100% yeah and it it call, all comes sort of like from little indirect bits like uh garrity has uh um this recurring kind of mem- like so as people are walking we also get the other thing about this book that i think uh warrants you know highlighting is that we get a lot of talk about how bodies feel mm-hmm. this is almost a body horror novel in some ways uh where the the only sort of thing about the body is that it walks and what happens when you force it to walk as much as possible until it just falls apart mm-hmm. uh 
So there are points in this novel where, like, Garrity is sort of delirious and uh, thoughts are flying in and out of his head. And this is done in kind of a stream of consciousness way. And we get bits and pieces of, like, a memory he has of his mother, I think, catching him and a friend, like, when they were, like, kids, like, toddlers, like, uh, playing together and, like, playing doctor. Um, and, like, his mom found them and, like, freaked out. Uh, and this sort of, like, echoes in these moments of delirium for him uh, in a way that, as a character, he never quite becomes conscious of or, like, comments on. It's never it's never a connection that he is making. It is a, a connection being sort of... Uh, the, the pieces are being laid out for the reader. Uh, at the By the end of the novel, right, there's uh, one, of the, one of the guards who's on the little... Uh, half track the little vehicle following them uh he keeps sort of like offhandedly remarking about how beautiful the guard is like how handsome he is uh yeah that that uh the character is jimmy right and and the reason i said earlier or not not the guard but the kid that he's talking about uh and and the reason i say that it eventually because i think i agree with you that it, it initially is this stream of consciousness kind of um uh, you know, subtexty kind of thing. It's the thing that we have to put together as a reader. But eventually, later in the novel, Garrity has a thought because the initial thought is, um, you know, my mom caught us playing doctor, and then you know she got mad at me, and then a year later, Jimmy moved away, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, interesting. And then somewhere at the midpoint of the novel, it's uh, you know, Jimmy, I hit Jimmy in the mouth uh, with a with a gun butt. Uh-huh. And and that has its own kind of you know uh, subtext to it, all kinds of stuff. And then eventually, Garrity is reflecting on that relationship, though, and he's thinking, "Well, was that were we just playing doctor?" Right? He he has his own mm-hmm. kind of um, recognition. He he makes it as textual as I think Stephen King can bring to make it. Right? It's, it is. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you know, eventually, McVries says something that is kind of jokingly but not jokingly right he says you know uh, would you jerk me off right now or something like that uh-huh. uh, and so you know the stephen king is building this kind of pyramid that comes to a very clear point for garrity of you know at, at the moment of these people of these men who are bound for death and they know they are bound for death there's a honesty that is possible that where Garrity uh-huh. can um, recognize, right, his own sexuality, right? And again, this is why I go back to the the Vietnam novel kind of thing, right? Because that's all over that whole genre mm-hmm. of, like, men who finally figure themselves out. Oh, in, in the last moment, how tragic. <laughs> and, and, but, and that's also the kind of thing, too, is that, like, much like all the other sex in this book and a lot of Stephen King books, this kind of queer relationship also has its, or, or, or whatever, uh, Garrity's feelings, his sexual feelings here, um, also has the kind of vibe of like someone having read about it on a wiki page and then trying to assemble it from its parts because you know none of it ever feels like an authentic you know i don't know set of feelings that a human being might have um Mm -hmm. but well and sort of uh all related to this i want to talk about one last character Mm -hmm. who you already mentioned scram who operates by being kind of the uh the the way that you both embody and then like just also show the 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 way that like traditional masculinity is also going to fail in the face of whatever forces these characters are up against because scram is from like north dakota or something yeah something like that 
he's like a he's like a big old farm boy and he's like blonde and he's just so good natured he's he's always saying you know like golly and shucks and things like that and he's you know he's built like a workhorse and he uh has already like he didn't finish high school it just it didn't make sense for him he just went to work he already has a wife they have a child on the way and he's in the long walk because he thinks that uh or like because he you know wants to care for uh his family so he's going to take the long walk um and the odds are on him like he's the favored to win uh, but he's still like he's not you know conceited in the way that uh you know a a, a Hunger Games villain might be. He's just sort of like genuinely an Oshucks guy, and he also he has this one line where he's like you know I've never had a cold. Well, wouldn't you know it? He gets a cold <laughs> just within the first within the first like day he starts getting the sniffles, um, and uh, he dies. Uh, and that is sort of, you know, that's where kind of your traditional masculinity gets you. But I also wanted to talk about Scram because he is my second uh, just absolutely wild face cast. <laughs> to my mind, Scram looks and sounds like Strong Sad from Homestar Runner. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's that character type. <laughs> <laughs> there's a point where he because it talked by the time he's like got his cold and he's doing really really badly his lot like whenever his dialogue is always described as like wheezing or whatever but he's still saying things like oh shucks i guess i'm gonna die <laughs> yeah and his arc is uh i think some of the smartest writing in the book in the book and, and by smartest i just mean it, it really shows that stephen king is thinking about this whole thing systemically because it, he doesn't mm-hmm. just catch a cold right you know the the as they walk well let me take one step back the reason we're talking about just characters you know maybe we should have said this at the beginning i, I guess we kind of did the reason we're just talking about characters is that this is just a book of stuff happening. <laughs> like there's not mm-hmm. there's not a like plot arc we can talk about, right? It's not like the stand where it's like the world dies and we learn about our characters and then uh you know uh they they go to Nebraska and then they go to Colorado and then they go to the end of the novel. There's none of that. It's like these people start walking and then just a bunch of vignettes happen and then the book is over. <laughs> um mm-hmm. and so that's why, you know, we're talking about specific characters here, but that's all to say Scram's kind of mini arc is that, uh, you know, he's the Vegas odds winner. You know, Vegas has him for being the one to win. Like you just said, he's he's built like an ox. He's ready to do it. He's he is this kind of uh, all American boy, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the guy who the odds are in his favor, you know, in all ways. And he gets a cold. Not not just randomly, right? I mean, I guess randomly in the sense of they're walking through Maine and the weather is changing constantly. I didn't know that Maine yeah. had like, uh, you know, all possible weather patterns that could happen over, you know, they have snow and hail and rain. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the mark of the erasure. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so what happens is that he takes his shirt off during the day because he's getting too hot and he leaves it off as it gets nighttime. And when he does that, he catches a cold from it. So it's the hubris involved, his his inexperience mm-hmm. with it, right? That he is so naive as to not recognize that his little bubble of the world of which he's so successful in or or such a, a emblematic of the, the truly normative person, right? He uh, got a nuclear family. He's from the heartland, all this stuff that that will not work here. Right. I mean, this is, again, mm-hmm. a very Vietnam novel kind of thing. 
Um, but the, the second thing that happens with him is that when it is clear he's going to die, everyone goes around and they make a deal to take care of his family if they win. And I, it might mm-hmm. be McVries. I don't remember who says it, but they say, uh, look, you know what? I bet every single year when the long walk happens, there's, a, you know, there's always a scram. There's always a guy that everyone thinks deserves to win and yet will die. Um, and I, he's just part of the system. And that to me, when that happened in the book, I was like, God, this is good. This idea, this recognition <laughs> that the long walk is just something that happens to, to, uh, uh, it's a structure and it doesn't matter what 100 people are in it. The same things are going to happen over and over again mm-hmm. with just minor changes. Uh, and that it's just, I, I thought it was a really powerful kind of, I don't know, ending to that, um, and of course he dies. <laughs> yeah. He he does not make it. Yeah. And I mean, uh, yeah, that that is a good example of kind of how this book works, because obviously that's not told all at once. We get little vignettes of it like spaced out. They're sort of interleaved together. Uh, and as you said, there's no real other overarching plot other than people keep walking and occasionally people are dying. So I guess you want to talk about the ending? Oh, well, I want to ask you a question before we talk about the ending, just really briefly, because I know we got a got an angle toward the ending here or the end of the of the show. What do you think about all the people that protest the long walk, like the walkers who like try to take out the people on the half track, all that stuff? How did you read that? Um, well, I guess what do you mean? What do I? So what Cameron is referring to is like, you know, there are various points where uh, like uh, one of the walkers will, uh, you know, just turn on the guards that are following them or whatever and get mowed down. When you say, how do I read that? What do you mean exactly? Well, so when I, you know, th- this whole thing, uh, you know, maybe this is like a, a, a mind trap in some way. The whole time I'm reading it, I'm reading it in, in the terms of like a war novel. So for me, it's a very easy jump to be mm-hmm. like, this is what the average soldier thinks of the apparatus of war, right? This is the officer killing. You know, or the attempt to, mm-hmm. to destroy those um, higher up in the chain of command, right? So when Olsen gets up on the half track and takes a gun out of uh, one of the people's hands and and then everyone's like, oh, my God, if we go help him, then we could actually overwhelm these troops who are holding us here functionally prisoner at this point. And then they choose not to do that, right? And this is kind of moment of like, oh, shit. Like that, that I, I have a way of reading or when I was reading the novel, that fits really easily into a structure that I'm already thinking of. But you were saying, you know, you you didn't really read the novel in that register or in that way. So, I mean, how did you interpret that resistance, I guess, is what I'm asking. I see. Uh, and uh, it interestingly enough, I will talk about this. Uh, well, I'll talk about it with my kingism because mm. it has to do with how I read Olson's kingism. Okay. okay. So... <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, then the uh, the end of it is uh, it's just Stebbins and Garrity, right? Is that where you want to start? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I already mentioned that uh, Garrity wins, maybe. Uh, the, the book is ambiguous about exactly what is happening here. Uh, Stebbins and Garrity are the last two. Well, I don't... Hmm. You think he doesn't win? You think he dies? I... I don't know, because so the the question, right, is that the, the question this is here is because or the reason this question is mm-hmm. here is because by the end, Garrity is, is pretty well delirious mm-hmm. uh, and 
I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Yeah, I was good in uh, mind. I guess because I think I think it's easier to to communicate uh, through actually reading it. Um, so Garrity is coming up to the finish line. Uh, he something we haven't mentioned uh, only briefly when we talked about Mario is that in towns uh, and, and sort of like, you know, where people live, people come out to watch the walk. Like there are people when, when it go, when the walk goes by their front, uh, by their front yard, they're sitting out in the lawn chairs watching. And when they go through the center of towns, there's always like a, a huge crowd of people there cheering and, and so on and so forth. So obviously by the end, there's a huge crowd to see the the final two walkers. Yeah, can, Garrity. Uh, can I can I read really briefly a description of crowd that I pulled yes. out? So this is on page two fifty one. Yeah. This is in chapter fourteen. This is like you're saying that you know they're they're stacked ten deep, right? So this is and this really feels like Stephen King writing about popular stuff in a general sense, right? Um, there was no bustling Italian man here to throw slices of watermelon. <laughs> Only uh-huh. crowd. Crowd has a capital C. Only crowd, a creature with no body, no head, no mind. Crowd was nothing but a voice and an eye, and it was not surprising that crowd was both God and mammon. Garrity felt it. He knew the others were feeling it. It was like walking between giant electrical pylons, feeling the tingles and shocks stand every hair on end, making the tongue jitter nuttily in the mouth. What a 2020 phrase. Uh, Making the eyes seem to crackle and shoot off sparks as they rolled in their beds of moisture. Crowd was to be pleased. Crowd was to be worshipped and feared. Ultimately, crowd was to be made sacrifice unto. So mm-hmm. that's like the that, that's how Stephen King is writing. You know this kind of force that is all around them. Sorry, I just thought that was a good you know kind of contextualizer for what you're about to talk about. No, I, I mean, I think it's also, I think that's very good. It is also just so much, uh, uh, you know, college undergraduate, like, first couple years way of thinking, right? The way you talked about, like, you you know that his feelings there were, like, the feelings that Stephen King himself felt <laughs> when he saw things that were popular and he didn't think they should be. 100%, yeah. Like... <laughs> like whatever it was yeah he was like i can't Uh, believe people like star wars (laughs) (laughs) uh but uh yeah so um stebbins uh you know stebbins and uh garrity are actually like walking together the crowd is sort of like cheering around them stebbins falls uh and they're shooting him and then uh garrity sees the major uh the major stood in the jeep he held a stiff salute, ready to grant first wish, every wish, any wish, any wish, death wish, the prize. Behind them, they finished by shooting the already dead Stebbins, and now there was only him, alone on the road, walking toward where the Major's jeep had stopped diagonally across the white line. And the Major was getting out, coming to him, his face kind and unreadable, and behind, unreadable behind the mirror sunglasses. Garrity stepped aside. He was not alone. The dark figure was up, was back, up ahead, not far, beckoning. For the past several, uh, sort of amount of pages, amount of time, Garrity has been hallucinating a kind of distant figure further down the road, beckoning him on. So that's what he's talking about here. He knew the figure. If he could get a little closer, he could make out the features. Which one hadn't he walked down? Was it Barkovich? Collie Parker? Percy, what's his name? Who was it? 
Garrity, the crowd screamed delirious, deliriously. Garrity, Garrity, Garrity. Was it Scram, Gribble, Davidson? A hand on his shoulder. Garrity shook it off impatiently. The dark figure beckoned, beckoned in the rain, beckoned for him to come and walk, to come and play the game. And it was time to get started. There was still so far to walk. Eyes blind, supplicating hands held out uh, before him as if for alms, Garrity walked toward the dark figure, and when the hand touched his shoulder again, he somehow found the strength to run. Mm -hmm. So, what we're supposed to understand is that, uh, I think, right, in terms of, like, physically, maybe one of the things that is happening here is that uh, Garrity has, he has been greeted by the Major because he's won the long walk, uh, but Garrity just keeps walking, walking toward this kind of, uh, uh, you know, delusion, uh, 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 illusion of a figure in front of him. And the major or someone is like trying to tap him on the shoulder. And I think it's ambiguous. You uh, might read that uh, found strength enough to run as, you know, him dying uh, as he rushes off to the to the distant figure, the dark man, who, of course, uh, makes us think of Randall Flagg, but also, I think, uh, aligns with what we were talking about was sort of the, the, the queer text of this novel. Mm -hmm. No, I just think that I mean, I get I I read that as uh, you know maybe maybe the framework of the war novel is just overwhelmingly right, but you just never leave it behind. Mm -hmm. You know the, the that's the thing. Uh, someone mentions it earlier in the book, but they say um, you know we know that those people win the prize, but how many of those people have you heard from again? Mm -hmm. Right, because Garrity talks about how one of the earlier winners of um of the long walk had been from maine before but he just knew that the, and that that guy had died like immediately afterward he had he had died mm -hmm. of a um uh like um, a brain embolism or something like that mm -hmm, something and uh so i i don't read that as being dead i i, I mean i read that as the long walk never goes away um, and mm -hmm. that you, once you are done with this thing, you are so permanently um, stuck in it, right? You're stuck with having mm -hmm. watched 99 people die, some of whom were your friends, that you just, you know, uh, you're always walking, um, whether you know it or not. Um, I also, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to read this and not think about just what we know about Stephen King and endings. <laughs> which is that he uh -huh. doesn't know what to do. And so it's like, right. And uh, yeah, there's a dark man and he walked toward the end. Yep. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think it is much more, maybe this is just me, you know, my proclivity as a reader. I think it's much um, more comforting to imagine that Garrity dies here as opposed to the much mm -hmm. more horrifying realization that Garrity has to continue living. Um, right. And so I'm going to go with Garrity continues living. No, I think that makes sense. And I think this is probably going to uh, make a lot more sense when we get to, my kingism when i finally talk about olsen mm -hmm. well let's, and also what what i think of what i think of olsen and his whole crowd well let's do it go i you know i think that's the end of it i i there's so many more kind of micro stories that exist in this book I, i'm going to talk about one too uh for my favorite kingism but um you know i i think that if what we have talked about if you haven't read this novel already and what we've talked about sounds interesting to you then there's a whole lot more of this i will say something that hasn't come up yet is um, early Steve, uh, as we have established it with the previous Bachman book, is not particularly good on race. 
and uh-huh. uh, not particularly good on gender. And both of those things show up here in uh, very robust ways, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote in the notes that one of the people in the walk was a knight rider. Um, and uh, so a clansman. Um, and yeah. that's really weird. And that's just kind of treated as like a normal thing that people do. Um, and not in a way where it's like, this is the dystopian future where the, the clan is out riding around. It's brought up in a way that like, it's, it's like slightly like ashamed, like slightly ashamed of it, but also like, just there's weirdly no context. It's so strange. Yeah, exactly. It's just dumped. Weirdly enough, the, 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 we are being given an authoritarian dystopian government. And one of the things that they've done evidence of dystopianism is that they have banned the clan. Yeah. And that's really weird to me. Um, and that's being given in character. I don't think that's like Stephen King saying that, right? That's a character's perspective on that. But one of the things mm-hmm. that the squads, right, the secret police have cracked down on is the clan. Um, and so that that's in the mix here. There's um, some kind of copious use of the, not maybe not copious, there's several uses of the N-word in the book. And basically mm-hmm. anytime that these men talk about women or come into contact with women or see women, uh, there's just a lot of fucked up stuff that happens just to be frank. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think this is a really interesting novel. This is infinitely better than rage. I think this is a fascinating novel to talk about and think about, especially in the kind of uh, trajectory of stuff like the hunger games, battle Royale, whatever, but it's a Stephen King book that came out in 1979 and it has all the kind of qualities of the other Stephen King books that, that we've talked about. So I say all that to say, I really think this book is interesting. I think that if you, enjoyed what we've talked about so far there's a lot more in it to get to uh, and to to talk about and think about but that is with the caveat that it is a stephen king book from this period and has all the qualities that all the other ones do yeah i mean i would say what what unites it with rage is that they both you can tell that both of them were written by an adolescent absolutely like they both feel like very adolescent stories this one in a way that is lesser than rage um but it is still a thoroughly adolescent kind of story for sure uh so yeah, my favorite Kingism then, uh, a moment of sort of unexpected grandeur, I think, that arrives in the middle of this otherwise uh, very much a book that a 21-year-old wrote. Um, we already mentioned Olsen, who's the guy who kind of starts out hot, thinking he's going to do really, really well, and like the major slaps him on the back. And then uh, at a certain point in the story, Olsen isn't talking shit anymore because he's just fallen silent and he's just walking. And there's a, a brief scene where uh, Garrity falls back and he's talking with Stebbins. And, uh, you know, Stebbins is being coy and mysterious as he always is. Uh, but Stebbins tells Garrity to uh, check in on Olsen because Olsen know like Olsen has figured something out. So eventually Garrity walks back up to talk to Olsen and he is sort of horrified because Olsen has, uh, so that the, the walkers get like little belts of concentrates mm-hmm. that they can eat while they're walking. Uh, and that's like, they're refilled every 24 hours. There's all these sort of like little rules about the walk that we didn't get into because they're not terribly important. Um, but like Olsen has really stopped eating. So he's like emaciated and he looks like, but he is described as if he were a walking corpse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Garrity is talking to him or trying to talk to him. Uh, 
and he's saying, you know, Olsen, uh, Olsen, tell me what to do. And Olsen is just kind of like wheezing uh, as he's walking. It's not even clear if he can hear Garrity, right? It's like he's shut everything out. Um, but he starts making noises like, ah, ah. And then eventually, um, you know, Garrity is like encouraging him. Garrity moved even closer. He put a hand on Olsen's shoulder and leaned into an evil nimbus of sweat, halitosis, and urine. Um Please, Garrity said, try hard. Gah, gah, God, God's garden. God's garden, Garrity repeated doubtfully. What about God's garden, Olsen? It's full of weeds, Olsen said sadly. His head bounced against his chest. And like, that's it, right? This is the first guy that, this is the first that this guy has talked in like over a day and he is like on death's doorstep and that is what he chooses to say. Um, then eventually what he does, as you mentioned, Cameron, uh, he turns on the soldiers that are tracking them, the ones that are there to shoot the walkers down when they slow, uh, and then he gets shot in that way. And you asked me what I thought, uh, that was, uh, because you have Mm -hmm. this kind of war novel reading. My reading of this novel, because I was not reading it as a Vietnam novel, um, I was reading this as a parable about death, which is why I think Garrity dies at the end. Mm -hmm. Right. I am. I read this as uh, a sort of uh, looking at the world and being like, this is what the world is. You are just forced to walk until you die. And that is it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that like, I'm not going to say that that's more horrifying than your reading that that Garrity continues to live, because for me, I was just sort of reading like, what would what would a 21 year old plausibly think they were writing about uh, if they were writing this book? Yeah. Yeah, it is the logical conclusion. Yeah. So anyway, but that was my favorite Kingism because uh, I, it's it touches on something that I've mentioned before, which is like the king's capacity to to do the nihilism thing, right? This character rasping out God's garden and then is full of weeds is is so good to me. I love that turn. It's also that, and it's also I, I think the kind of Kingianism part of it too is it's a little bit pat too. You, you uh-huh. know, it's not, uh, you know, it is not the kind of statement about death that you might get from like, you know, a high modernist, a T.S. Eliot or something like that, right? Where it's like poetic and and uh, the the metaphor is so slanted that you really have to be like, what are you talking about? Like, it's a very accessible metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. It's It's that kind of like popular balance that i think really gives some of king's best writing its power where it is bigger than you expect it to be but not so big that you have to work too hard to like Mm -hmm. interpret it right yeah no it's it 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 manages to be a a sort of sweeping philosophical statement that is very simple made in kind of i mean it's made in religious terms right but doesn't feel like a religious statement right it feels like a way of describing how this character has come to see the world yeah 100 percent yeah, I think we'll, I, I think, well, I don't know. Can you say really briefly, if, if you know, how much editing did Stephen King do for this in 1979? I have no okay. clue. So so we don't I have just, a I sense. really don't know. Because um, yeah. it felt like for Rage, very little. But for this, uh-huh. this has enough kind of touches of what, what I associate with King in the 80s that it feels like a lot of rewriting might have happened. Yeah, no, I, I agree that just... If it is unedited, it is remarkable how quickly Stephen King got better at this. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
Uh, well, my uh, my favorite kingism. So you know, everyone dies. Uh, well, uh-huh. <laughs> either ninety nine or one hundred people die, depending on how you interpret the end of the novel. Um, mm-hmm. But ninety nine confirmed dead. And uh, uh, so mine is this character Baker, who kind of shows up repeatedly. Um, mm-hmm. He might be the. He's not the Knight Rider, is he? I think he, he might is. be. Yeah. Uh, but he has a monologue uh, it, it, before he dies. Um, and, uh, it's on 268 of my, my book, and I'm just gonna read the whole things. Um, I'm about done in, Baker said simply. Garrity says, we all are, Baker says. I get to remembering all the nice things that ever happened to me. First time I took a girl to a dance, and there was this big old drunk fellow that kept trying to cut in, and I took him outside and whipped his ass for him. I was only able to, I was only able to because he was so drunk, and that girl looked at me like I was the greatest thing since the internal combustion engine. My first bike... The first time I read The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, that's my favorite book, Garrity, should anyone ever ask you. Sitting half asleep by some mud hole with a fishing line and catching crawdaddies by the thousands, laying in the backyard and sleeping with a Popeye finding book on my face. I think about those things, Garrity, just lately, like I was old and getting senile. And then he he talks a little bit more, but that's the bulk of the monologue. And that to me is like, uh, that is Stephen King's ability to sketch a character perfectly in mm-hmm. in nothing you know in, in a, a third of a page um we mm-hmm. don't ever have to learn anything more about that this guy's a character other than his own reflection about the things that he likes in the world and and it's a full and complete kind of of narrative and when we i you know this is something that i think we're going to see again when we do the stand extended edition it's something that we're going to see in it um it's going to come up a few different times but stephen king it's something we've already seen i guess in salem's lot and some of the some of the sections we talked about in salem's lot but this is stephen king like flexing that muscle and he only got better at it and continues to get better at it up until today you know in his late in his mid 70s i think now um yeah and but just to see it here so early right that it's just a thing he's got this ability to craft a whole little character world and uh, in with voice and with reference and with a social scenario that's good god three sentences four sentences long that in mm-hmm. in the phrasing of it here right uh i took him outside and whipped his ass for him like that is such mm-hmm. a specific phrasing that tells you so much about this character uh i don't know mm-hmm. i think it's a really masterful kind of um you know paragraph no it is it's very very good uh, now that we've talked about good things, let's do a new segment. Uh, this is called Bachman Turner Overshare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is uh, going to be I maybe just part of uh, Bachman books. I don't know. It may show up on on Worthy King episodes, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, but one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading this, uh, and I've already gestured at this somewhat when I was talking about how so much of this novel ends up being concerned with like the pains that a body undergoes when it's uh, being exhausted. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a strong theme, I think, of body horror that runs through all of the Richard Bachman books, or like all of the all of the books that King publishes as Bachman, and I mean ones even after the Bachman books, I think are kind of events. Uh, uh, they events a concern with bodies in in a way. Um, that is is peculiar to them. It's a lot grosser than than your normal mainline king, I guess. And so we're just going to like pick something out of uh, the book that 
is is just like, well, that's a gross out. That's not something I wanted to to hear about. And we will be as delicate as possible. Uh, but just to acknowledge, these are things that are happening in these books constantly. Yeah, what do you got? Mine, mine extremely grossed me out, but it's not going to be as gross as yours. Yeah, uh, mine is just uh, the multiple scenes where people have to stop and poop in this novel. There's a lot. Because, yeah, it's a lot. And it, I know it makes sense. And I guess this is also something that uh, the, the the whole the, the Bachman-Turner overshare uh, segment is trying to get at. Um, it is an extremely Bachman move to have a novel where you have to account for the ways <laughs> that the characters are pooping. It's true. <laughs> right? Like, that is just... Uh, and so, of course, right, there are these characters, they're walking, they're walking for like, I think they walk for three or four days in the final uh, sort of reckoning. And there are times when they have to go to the bathroom and they have to be very quick about it because if they're too slow, then they drop below their uh, average pace and then they get shot. Um, which I guess to your point actually is like they, they're wearing like, I think they're supposed to be wearing like trackers or something that are tracking their average pace. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's never really gotten oh, into. Oh, so maybe you could you could juice the numbers a little bit by running or going faster. Uh. Yeah, there's a I, I I just I I just sort of put together that there are repeated references to characters carrying what they call um like silver chronometers, mm. which is like if Stephen King wanted to say watch, he could have just said watch. I think he's trying to signal that there is like that these are a piece of technology, mm. right? That are uh doing things. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so that's just, that's the, that's the Richard Bachman thing here. Uh, yeah, there's also multiple scenes of people walking backwards and urinating, (laughs) which is impressive. (laughs) Uh, I don't, I don't know if I could, I could do that. Um, you know, the, the having to poop on the road didn't bother me at all, even a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, the urinating, uh, people's brains being, uh, you know, shot out of them and being explained in gory detail. That guy getting run over by the half track didn't mm-hmm. bother me or multiple people actually getting run over by the half track. None of that bothered me. Uh, at the very beginning of the novel, Stebbins is sitting in a tree. I think I mentioned this earlier, eating a uh, eating a sandwich that is not wrapped up in foil or plastic or anything like that. And he's carrying additional sandwiches with him so he's got like a, a second sandwich and he eats it so this is kind of something that we see over the first maybe fourth of the novel is that garrity looks back and stebbins is eating a sandwich and eventually i think it's the first night it rains and his sandwich gets wet and he's still carrying it mm-hmm. and he's going to eat it and the idea of eating a sandwich that has been immersed in water is disgusting to me that is that is uh overwhelmingly gross to me it's like a jelly sandwich too so there's no uh like backbone to this thing right it's it's it's, you're eating slime i hate Mm -hmm. it i absolutely i I don't like talking about it just now it makes my uh i feel queasy thinking about the image itself i don't care about it I, i don't care for it at all no thanks well yeah i can't say i disagree wet sandwiches not a fan here on just king things uh, well, I guess that leaves just one segment, unless you want to do King of Verse. Did you have any King of Verse thoughts? Uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I didn't. I, although, I, I guess the one thing, and something I mentioned earlier, is that uh, what's interesting to me about the kind of what in the King of Verse, there's, I, as far as I could tell, there's nothing that's actually shared. You know, there's no ties to the King of Verse. Um, 
I, for some reason, during when I was reading it, I thought uh, maybe someone had telekinesis, but I can't remember where that <laughs> I was looking for it earlier. I marked the page, but I also ended up marking like 80 pages in the book, so I couldn't f- figure out where it uh, was. So that might be, have been a thing. But also what I was talking about earlier, that kind of plus minus 5% of the world thing, mm-hmm. th- this is a device that Stephen King uses pretty often. Um, and we'll continue to use this kind of alternate world to the one we live in just slightly or how history changed just slightly um so i guess that's kind of a resonant thing um but no there's as far as i could tell no literal connections anywhere yeah no i think i agree right actually when you were talking about the the slight differences one thing that jumped out at me in the book uh just a slight detail was that uh it's someone mentions a date and it's april 31st oh mm, interesting right Right, which is a very, like, that's the sort of thing that happens in, like, a Dark Tower yeah. book where you go through the wrong door and you end up in a in a world where something is not quite right, where suddenly, like, the day has, or the month has an extra day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, no, I did not notice that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that because, you know, the if we're t- treating it as science fiction, the obvious sort of answer would be that somehow, for some reason, this fascist government has reordered, like, renumbered the months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which could happen, right? Like there, there are there are regimes that have tried to create new calendars. Um, it's just a slightly weirder reach than than normal, yeah. uh, and that leaves us with our final segment, Uncle Stevie's mixtape. We have one song here, Cameron, and it is by the master himself, Mister Bob Dylan. Yeah, it's uh, subterranean homesick blues, and uh, it's terrible. One star. Hmm. Okay. Uh, And just to help everyone calibrate things, before the show, I had Cameron listen to uh, Bob by Weird Al Yankovic, which is uh, Al Yankovic's style parody of Bob Dylan, um, to see if maybe Cameron found that more amusing. And he said they were the exact same thing. So there is something constant about the malice for Dylan here. Yeah, the idea of calling that uh, Weirdo Al song uh, parody is uh mm-hmm. funny to me because it's just the same <laughs> it's so funny you're not even laughing oh i'm laughing on the inside trust me oh, okay that mm-hmm. bob well, dylan has fooled you all <laughs> i'm i'm slowly turning uh, into the joker about bob dylan <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's keep that energy going into next month uh as we look to our next book which is 1979's the dead zone i'm excited about it. you've started reading it already right i have i haven't started reading i have a, i have a copy in my hands though um and so so i'm excited to dig into it and um it's it's a little bit longer than this one right a little bit uh it's a it's sort of a full novel mm-hmm. uh in in it <laughs> I have thoughts about this percolating already, so we'll get into that next month about about this this thing in particular and the novel as a form. Mm, well, uh, what is? Oh yeah, because I remember that book. It's been a long time since I've read that, but it, it uh, it's kind of structured in a weird way. It's got a very interesting structure. Oh dang! For, uh, and I will... for the bonus episode, we're gonna watch the movie. Well, first of all, we should say what the bonus episode for this month is going to oh, be. Oh yeah, so it's available right now. You can go listen to it if you go to patreon.com slash range touch. And we will be talking about, unless Cameron has changed his mind and didn't tell me until we were just recording, we will be talking about The Children of the Corn. Yeah, the the original. Yeah, from 1984, I believe. Mm. 
or maybe 86 the apple year nope it's 84. 84 yep the apple year interesting corn came in the year of apple Ooh, i think you got it backwards apple came in the year of corn <laughs> they stole it from the corn but yeah so you can go to uh, uh patreon.com slash range touch and support the five dollar a month level to get access to some bonusodes uh and that bonusode as michael just said will be children of the corn if you are listening to this then that is up right now for you to go check out yeah and if you want to know more you can go to twitter.com slash range touch that's usually where we promote or announce any and all new projects uh you can also find video content that we do that is youtube.com slash range touch uh we also have a discord there's a link to that in the description if you want to uh come say hi to us or, or talk about stephen king with folks in our dedicated channel where we talk about any and all stephen king news uh and you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. You can find Cameron on Twitter at C Kunzelman. Until next time, uh, what what do we got to remember? What why, what's going on, Cameron? Why are we doing this? Well, sometimes you do things for the world. You know, you uh, you grow food, for example, or you make uh-huh. a podcast. Uh huh. But we also do it for Steve. <laughs>